What do you think the world needs most? That's a kind of good you know, man on the street question, right? You've, you've seen those videos before. Someone with a camera and a microphone uh, walks up to a stranger and sticks a microphone in, in front of them and asks them a question. You know, what do you think the world needs most? And they grab a hundred or so responses and compile them into a video which makes us laugh and lament and linger in thought sometimes. What would you say if that happened to you? What do you think the world needs most? How would you answer that question? There's a, a small problem with that question though, right? The problem is that the question seems to imply that what the world has not been given what it needs most. One of the central convictions of Christianity is that the world is in need and that in Jesus Christ, God has given the world what it needs most, His Son, the Savior and King. This is the message of the Bible. This is the, the message of the Gospel of Luke, which, uh, Lord willing, we'll be studying over the next several months. And if you haven't done so already, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you should be able to find the beginning of Luke's Gospel on page 855 of the Bibles provided. That's in the uh, second major part of the Bible uh, in the New Testament. Luke is the third book in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, and then Luke. And while you're turning there, I'd like to address just a few introductory matters about Luke's Gospel to help kind of frame our study of Luke's gospel as a whole. So I want to ever so briefly address the author and the date, the genre, and the main point of Luke's gospel. First and foremost, the author of Luke's gospel is Luke. Uh, Luke was a physician. He was a ministerial companion of the Apostle Paul. Technically speaking, the, the author of the Gospel of Luke is, is anonymous, but there are textual clues which uh, strongly indicate to us that Luke was the author. The first uh, textual clue is it's tied to the book of Acts. Uh, both were written to a man by the name of Theophilus, so both have openings addressing Theophilus. Uh, when we begin reading through the book of Acts, we come to see that the author of the book starts actually including himself in the narrative when Luke joins Paul in the mission of preaching the gospel around the world. And the early church was unanimous in its reception of Luke's gospel as coming from the hand of this famous physician of Luke. And there was very little debate as to whether or not Luke wrote the book of Luke and Acts. Uh, for what it's worth, I'd, I'd follow the conclusion of most evangelical scholars that Luke's gospel is uh, likely written sometime after the final events of the book of Acts. My sense is it was probably written sometime before Paul's death in 64 AD. If Jesus' death, uh, resurrection, and ascension dates to roughly 33 AD, then we're looking at a gospel that dates a mere 30 years or, or less after the events recorded in it. This is significant for it means that eyewitnesses, they were still alive and could recount events to others and to Luke. In fact, Luke even communicates that he sought out eyewitnesses to compile this account. When we come to Luke's gospel, we, we also need to understand that we come to a particular genre of literature. The thing about genres of literature is that they all abide by rules. Uh, writing in a particular genre presumes that you will write according to a particular set of rules and your readers will expect you to write according to those rules as well. And, and Luke's gospel, as well as the three other gospels in the New Testament, are appropriately categorized in the genre of Greek bioi or uh, Greco-Roman biographies. Greco-Roman biographies were usually composed in continual prose. Uh, normally, they, they didn't cover the entirety of a person's life. Uh, rather, generally speaking, there was a, a very brief mention of ancestry in, in the biography, but their main focus was to move rapidly toward a, pub, a person's kind of public life. Uh, biographies of generals and leaders uh, were usually arranged chronologically. Sometimes they were uh, arranged around the main points of a person's teaching, but they all usually recorded in, in detail the death of their subject, and that's true for all of the Gospels. Uh, the whole aim of these biographies was to demonstrate how the person had an impact on the nation's history. Uh, when we come to, to Luke's Gospel and to other Gospels, uh, it, it's readily apparent that these works fit into that genre, this ancient uh, Greek bioi. There's, there's, there's one major difference, though. The Gospels do not present Jesus as a mere figure who had an impact 
on the history of a single nation at a single point in time. Rather, they present Jesus as the one to whom the entire history of the world has been pointing. In other words, Luke's gospel shows that the history of the world has been moving along, waiting for, longing for, hoping for the arrival of Jesus Christ. That's why Luke, as an author, will mention Adam and Abraham and David and the prophets. He's compiling these things to show us history has been coming to this point. Luke's gospel demonstrates that Jesus is the climax of world history, the shaper of world history, and the one whom forever alters the course of world history. Which leads us to think about the main point of Luke's gospel. The main point of Luke's gospel is to announce that the good news, that the Savior of the world has come. This is the good news of Luke's gospel, that the second Adam, the promised offspring of Abraham, the promised king of David, has come to, in the words of Luke chapter 1, verses 77 to 78, give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. This is the good news that Luke's gospel announces. And uh, should the Lord Jesus tarry, this is the good news that we have the privilege of undertaking to study over the next several months as we consider the life and ministry of Jesus. And as we study uh, the first chapter of Luke's gospel this morning, uh, we're going to do, so do so under four headings. So these are the four points of this sermon. Two purposes, two announcements, two blessings, and two poems. So what we're getting hit with today in God's Word is a two-by-four. Uh, as, uh, as we consider our first point, two purposes, let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Luke chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile a narrative of the things that have been accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word have delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having followed all things closely for some time past, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, that you may have certainty concerning the things you have been taught. Here, in the, the very opening of his gospel, Luke seems to acknowledge that others have written narratives of the things that have been accomplished. Indeed, it's more than likely that Mark's gospel was written prior to Luke's, as he seems to borrow uh, material from Mark's gospel in his compiling his own gospel. So if, if Mark's gospel exists, why, why does Luke need to write a gospel? Well, he tells us why there in verse 3. His first reason or purpose for writing this gospel because it, it seemed to him to be a good thing to do. Uh, this does not mean that Mark's gospel or Matthew's gospel, if it was written by this time, was inadequate or inaccurate. Rather, from where he was situated, where Luke was situated in the world, he thought that this would be a good thing for him to do as well. And I couldn't agree more. Uh, given his direct connection with the Apostle Paul, his relationships within the Christian church, his interests in details and history, and as verse 3 says, his having followed all things closely for some, past, some time past, Luke was a great person to take up the quill and to write this gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm glad that the Lord put this burden upon his heart and divinely inspired him as he wrote. Luke's first purpose in writing was to faithfully recount the things that had been accomplished. Notice that, caref notice that careful language there in verse 1. These things have been accomplished. That language calls us to consider the fact that from Luke's vantage point, and I'd even go so far as to say from the perspective of the whole Old Testament, that these things needed to be accomplished. The world was waiting for these things to be accomplished. And these things were accomplished in Luke's time. In this gospel, he intends to communicate what was accomplished, the forgiveness of sins. These things have been accomplished, were accomplished in the presence of, notice there, eyewitnesses, plural. In our court system today, it's sometimes sufficient to convict someone on the testimony of one eyewitness, but Luke makes us aware that there were several eyewitnesses to the events that had been accomplished. Sadly, too often early Christians have been slandered as those who don't care about facts, but that's just not true. And Luke's appeal to multiple eyewitnesses speaks to that. 
So does Luke's appeal to those who were ministers of the word, who delivered this news to others. You see there in verse 2. That word delivered in the Greek has, has connotations of authoritative tradition being handed down. Great care was taken to accurately pass on history. This wasn't a, a world that merely cared about concepts. It's not as though they said, so here's the main idea, go and share that with everybody else. No, they cared about words, particular words and deeds, particular deeds. They carefully passed along those words and deeds. They carefully delivered a tradition to the next generation. And Luke is recording that tradition for us. Luke's first purpose in writing was to faithfully recount the things that had been accomplished. And his second, his second purpose in writing is seen right there in verses 3 and 4 concerning Theophilus. Luke wanted Theophilus to have certainty concerning the things that were handed down to him. Uh, perhaps this very gospel comes in part as a result of Luke taking down eyewitnesses' testimony and verifying the historicity of the events and teachings that took place for the sake of Theophilus' certainty. Luke has a very pastoral concern for this man in that sense. He doesn't want his faith to falter. And he wants to provide him with a solid foundation for his faith. Theophilus seems to have been an individual person with whom Luke was acquainted or perhaps even a close friend based on how Luke addresses Theophilus here uh, as most excellent Theophilus. Uh, some have supposed that uh, he may have been a benefactor of some kind. Perhaps the one who supported, financially supported Luke's investigative work. Whatever the case may be, uh, we know from these first four verses that Luke's two purposes in writing were one, to faithfully recount the things that have been accomplished, and two, in order to provide Theophilus with grounds for certainty for his faith. Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, we can be certain that the tradition that we have about Jesus has been faithfully transmitted to us. The first believers handled the truth about Jesus with care. And what is more, there were multiple eyewitnesses to verify what took place. They could verify the historicity of these redemptive events. In short, we can trust the Bible. If you haven't done so already, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of Greg Gilbert's little book, Why Trust the Bible. You can find a copy uh, in the book nook. It's available there. And I, I think it will bolster your understanding of the reliability of God's word. One final thing to note from these verses. Luke mentions that these things happened among us, he says, and were delivered to us. These events that we're about to read in Luke's gospel create, by the power of the Holy Spirit, an us. They create a community, a believing community, a church. And this will become one of the haunting questions of Luke's gospel. Are we a part of that us? Will you come to believe in and follow Jesus? As we read and study Luke's gospel, that is the constant question we must be asking ourselves. Are we a part of that believing community? Let's turn now and consider our second point, two announcements. In the opening chapters of his gospel, Luke intertwines the lives of two people, of John the Baptist and Jesus, to, to compare and contrast them and to show their connection uh, to God's purposes in world history. Here, uh, in Luke chapter 1, verses 5 through 38, there are two birth announcements. We'll think about them one at a time. For now, let's read uh, the birth announcement of John the Baptist. I want to read verses 5 through 25. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him. And fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, 
Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many to the of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before them in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple. And he kept making signs to them and remained mute, and when his time of service was ended, he went to his home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived. And for five months, she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. Well, in the first four verses of Luke's gospel, Luke told us that things were being accomplished and happening in his day. And, and after reading this angelic encounter, uh, Luke's opening remarks feel like something of an understatement. Things really are happening. Angels are appearing. There are several things that we need to observe here. Uh, this angelic announcement of, of a child is not the first or the last one in the Bible. In fact, this announcement is most reminiscent of the Lord's announcement to Abraham and Sarah concerning the birth of Isaac in the book of Genesis. Elizabeth, like Sarah, was barren. She was advanced in years. Elizabeth, it was her heart's desire to have a child. And as we read, I wonder if you noticed that she had done everything right. And yet she felt cursed by God. In the Bible, childlessness is a sign of the curse. And faithful women are found pleading with God to give them children. Now, in my ministry here at this church, I haven't felt the need to preach a sermon on the subject of being fruitful and multiplying. Uh, the husbands and wives of our congregation seem to be taking the Bible's commands pretty seriously, so little encouragement is needed from me. Uh, having said that, even though we seem to be a prosperous congregation in this regard, uh, we should not assume that every couple can easily have a child. One of the effects of the fall of Adam is that sometimes couples cannot conceive. Zechariah and Elizabeth apparently couldn't conceive, and this, this was a burden to them. Uh, we ought to share that with one another. That is our burden. We have covenanted together to carry one another's burdens and sorrows. We ought to join in prayer with one another and express our, our love for one another. We may be doing everything right, and yet life ultimately comes from the Lord. God must act if a woman is to have life in her womb. This is why children are a God-given gift. When the Lord is pleased to relieve the burden of Elizabeth's barrenness, she recognizes the miraculous nature of what the Lord has done. From a human perspective, this should not have happened. She was too old. Still, Elizabeth recognizes that she is a special recipient, recipient of a grace gift. This child is from Aaron's line in his mother's lineage, and Zachariah's line is a priest, and we're told that he will minister. He will be a minister on God's behalf. John will walk in the Nazarite tradition. The, uh, the details of the Nazarite vow we found in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21. There were three things the Nazarite was to abstain from. Alcoholic beverages from cutting your hair and during the time of, of uh, the vow to abstain from having contact with uh, a, a dead body. 
the purpose of, of taking on the Nazarite vow was to be set apart for special service to God. This child's whole life, every aspect of it, was to be set apart and dedicated to God. And he was to be set apart and dedicated to serving God for his whole life. Zechariah was given the purpose of John's life there in verse 17. You notice that we read, And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. How many parents have been told by an angel of the Lord the purpose of their child's life? Well, not many. And in the Bible, really only a handful. Isaac and Samuel and Samson and John the Baptist and Jesus come to my mind. The purpose of John's life is becoming clear, but only in connection and contrast to someone else's life. John's life is to be lived in service to the Lord and for the purpose of preparing a people for His coming. Don't miss the force of what the angel said. The Lord is coming. Uh, this was promised by the prophet Malachi in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. That's the last book in the Old Testament. And it concludes like this. Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. The prophet Isaiah, he had a similar prediction. In Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, we read, A voice cries in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. That's in all caps. That's Yahweh. Prepare the way of Yahweh. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. John, he would be that one who would stand in the wilderness and cry like Elijah, preparing the people for a great end-time event, the coming of God Himself. But how would God come? Is it any wonder that Luke immediately pivots to offer a second announcement? So let's read Luke's second announcement in verses 26 to 38. In the second month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob, and forever, of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Here, uh, another birth announcement takes place. The birth announcement of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we simply cannot overlook the connections between the previous section and this section. Dr. Robert Kara points out, aptly points out, that Gabriel was sent to Zechariah and Mary, verses 11 and 26. Both Zechariah and Mary are troubled, verses 29 and 12. Gabriel says to both, fear not, verses 13 and 30, and furnishes the names of John and Jesus, verses 13 and 31. Both Zechariah and Mary are told that their children will be great, verses 15 and 32. Both Zechariah and Mary question the announced pregnancies, verses 18 and 34, with both births being miraculous, but not equally miraculous, verses 18 and 35. And the lineages of the parents are given. Verses 5 and 27. The connections, they just go on and on. And what we must not forget are the Old Testament connections that have already been established so far in the narrative. 
Friends, brothers and sisters in Christ, the Bible is one grand story. Think about it. The Abrahamic promises have been brought into view. The promises that his offspring would bless many nations. Prophetic promises about the coming of Elijah and the coming of the Lord have been brought into view. And what Luke is implicitly telling us now, which he will work out throughout the rest of his gospel, is that Jesus is Lord. He is the one who would come... He is the focus of the Davidic promises. That's the import of verse 27 in mentioning Joseph's lineage of being of the house of David. The Old Testament hopes centered on one from David's line. This one from David's line would be given the name Jesus. We see there in verse 31, which means the Lord saves. So here we're being told about the coming of God himself and how he would be at the same time a Davidic king who would also serve and act as the Savior. He is not only God, He is also the Son of God, or the Son of the Most High, as verse 32 makes clear. Here we're seeing a differentiation of the three persons of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It is the second person of the triune Godhead, the Eternal Son, who is coming to earth, and to Him, the Lord God, the Eternal Father, will give to him the throne of his father David. This is what was promised in Psalm chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, where we read, And as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. It was also the promise of 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 and 13, where we read, where the Lord said to David, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. The promise that Jesus will reign on David's throne forever is not substantially different from the promise that he will reign over Jacob, which is shorthand for the people of God. These promises are really one in the same. One unique thing about this promised child, though, is that he will reign forever. We're not told that he will have an enduring dynasty. No, no, no. Verse 33, he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. He shall reign forever and ever. And moreover, his realm will not be over some small sliver of land in Palestine. Of his kingdom, there will be no end. His rule will never end, and there will be no end to his realm. He will be the king of the world, not of some paltry province like Herod, the king of Judea, who was mentioned in verse 5. Jesus is not some rival king with a rival kingdom. Here is the shattering news of Luke's gospel, the earth-shattering news, that Jesus is the long-awaited king. He is the king of kings. He has a higher throne because he comes from a higher home. As miraculous as John's birth was, Jesus' birth was even more miraculous. And Mary had a sense of that when she asked in verse 34, how can this be since I am a virgin? One of the objections to the Bible is that uh, people in the first century were not as scientifically, scientifically sophisticated as we are today. But friends, the young Mary had a sufficient understanding of science, and her question reveals that. She knew where babies came from, and she knew of the impossibility of being pregnant since she was a virgin. As Christians, we do not deny that Jesus' conception contravened the laws of science. It did. There is no way around that fact. Jesus' conception contravened the laws of science. That's what happens in miracles. They are by nature supernatural. They contravene the natural laws. And you may say it is impossible, but I assure you on the word of an angel from heaven, nothing is impossible with God. It is His delight to do the impossible. And any astute reader of the Bible would have known that this is how it had to be. Isaiah 7.14 predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. 
Isaiah 7, 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. It's hard to say precisely how the Holy Spirit performed this miracle. The, the, the most detailed account of this conception is given here in verse 35 where we're told that the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. That's it. The details surrounding this miracle are slim. All we know is that the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary and placed the eternal Son of God in Mary's womb. Nowadays, Christians sometimes face the accusation from our, our Muslim friends that in teaching Jesus' miraculous conception that we're teaching that God had relations with Mary. That is outlandish. The scriptures nowhere teach that. It's false. And frankly, it's a red herring, I think, to attempt to throw us off the path of discussing who Jesus really is. He is the Son of God, as verse 35 says. In verse 35, we see another reason that Jesus' conception had to be miraculous. Jesus had to be holy, which is to say he had to be set apart from sin and without sin. If he was to be the savior of sinners, he himself had to be free from sin. This is why no ordinary conception would do. Joseph could not be his father. It had to be a miraculous conception. In fact, only the virgin birth would so perfectly ensure the uniting of full deity and full humanity in one person. The virgin birth was the only way in which Jesus could be both God and man in two distinct natures, yet one person forever. As Christians, I think that we should learn from Mary's humble faith and from Zachariah's initial unbelief. Mary asked, how will this be? Zachariah asked, is this going to be? Mary believed, but she wasn't sure how it could be. Zechariah did not believe that it could be, and so he asked for proof. Zechariah initially struggled to believe the angelic announcement, but Mary, amazing Mary, uh, believed that the one who spoke the world into existence had the power to speak and put divine life into her womb. Mary believed that the spirit who overshadowed the face of the deep as Genesis 1.1 says, and subsequently took part in the creation of the world as a member of the triune Godhead, would overshadow her and cause life to grow in her womb. Mary willingly and humbly became God's servant, a servant not for her own glory, but for the purposes of being used by God to carry out his saving purposes through the child in her womb. We learn two things from these two birth announcements. First, we learn that a prophet in the mold of Elijah is coming to announce the coming of the Lord. And second, we learn that this will be no empty announcement. The Lord is coming. As two purposes give way to two announcements, so the two announcements give way to two blessings. Let's turn now and consider our third point, two blessings. And let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 45. Luke chapter 1 verses 39 to 45. In those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby in her womb leaped and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. This is a beautiful scene between two women who are recipients of two miracles. Elizabeth's pregnancy was a miracle because she was barren and God opened her womb. Mary's pregnancy was a miracle because she was a virgin. And the central frame of this scene is Elizabeth's blessing Mary. Now here's the thing. At one level, we should really expect Elizabeth to be the center of the scene. As Mary, being Elizabeth's cousin, 
would have known that Elizabeth has waited a long time to conceive. Elizabeth, she's also the elder, and therefore first honor should have been given to her. As this scene unfolds, you think that Mary would be expressing joy, her joy in God's good gift to Elizabeth, but that's not what happened. The focus is neither Elizabeth, nor John, nor Mary. All eyes are upon Jesus, the baby in Mary's womb. John, in Elizabeth's womb, has already begun his work of directing sinners to the Savior. And as the Holy Spirit fills Elizabeth, she blesses Mary. In fact, we could even say that Elizabeth was something of a prophetess. In the Old Testament, the Spirit would come upon uh, prophets, filling them and giving them words from the Lord so that they might explain to the people of God what is taking place and why it is taking place. And it seems to me that we cannot escape the possibility that Elizabeth is speaking prophetically with God-given insight. How else would she know that Mary is carrying her Lord in her womb? Elizabeth blesses Mary, not for any righteous works that she had done, but because of the righteous one in her womb. Elizabeth is blessed because Mary has brought the Lord near to her. And Elizabeth blesses Mary for another reason too. Mary believed the word that was spoken to her. Unlike Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, who struggled to believe, Mary dared to believe that God could and would give what he promised. In that sense, Mary shows us faith like Abraham. Mary shows us that we ought to believe all of God's promises to us. Let us believe God's word. He who called us is faithful. He will surely do it. There's yet another scene of blessing in Luke 1. It's found in verses 57 to 66. Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 66. Let's read these verses now. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke, Blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. The Lord gave to Zechariah and Elizabeth just what he had promised, a son. Notice that the gift of this son is described as a gift of mercy. It was a mercy, a great act of mercy for them. And this was cause for great joy. They rejoiced, and so did their neighbors and relatives. The joy of receiving children from the Lord is not merely a family affair. Rather, it is cause for celebration for the entire community. With such a steady drumbeat of death in our world, each and every one of us ought to rejoice at the arrival of a child. New life reminds us that God will not let this sin-filled and cursed world be swallowed up in death. Life will overcome death. Brothers and sisters, I think that as a congregation, you do a spectacular job in rejoicing in the news of little ones being added and given to the members of our church. You do a wonderful job of supporting, providing meals, praying for, and encouraging those who have just welcomed babies into their homes. And I'd encourage you to keep up that good practice. And I think that it's wonderful that everyone from every walk kind of gets in on this encouragement too. Whether you are single or married or widowed, have children or don't have children, it is good and right to encourage one another because fundamentally we are brothers and sisters in Christ. As faithful Israelites, Zechariah and Elizabeth were keeping the customs of naming and circumcision on the eighth day. But as we can see from verse 60 there, you'll notice they did break with the tradition of naming this son after his father. Uh, this boy does not receive the name Zechariah. Instead, in obedience to the angel Gabriel, this child receives the name that God gave him, John. Elizabeth, you see, insisted upon it. 
And Zechariah's need to write out John's name on a tablet in verse 63 reminds us that he had been unable to speak due to his unbelief in the temple. But in verse 64, his tongue is loosed and he speaks, you'll see, blessing God. Just as Elizabeth blessed Mary. John's birth and Zechariah's blessing have profound reverberations. I wonder if you noticed this as we read. Fear, faith-filled fear, I think, filled those who were present. But this blessing, it bubbled out of that home and became the subject of conversation far and wide. It reached all of their neighbors and all those throughout the hill country of Judea, verse 65. The preparatory work of this child, of John, has already begun. The two scenes of blessing are but kind of the, the foreshocks of God's great earthquake of a blessing to come in Jesus Christ. These two scenes of blessing are actually followed by two poems. And the two poems are contained in this first chapter. They teach us more about the blessing that God is going to announce through John and accomplish through Jesus. So let's turn now and consider our fourth and final point. Two poems. And let's begin with Mary's poem which is commonly called the, the Magnificat. Let's, let's read verses 46 to 56 now. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for He has looked on the humble estate of His servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For He who is mighty has done great things for me. And holy is His name. And His mercy is for those who fear Him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with His arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich He has sent away empty. He has helped His servant Israel in the remembrance of His mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her, that's Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her home. One of my uh, Old Testament professors likes to uh, point out that poetry was the way in which you said the important stuff in the ancient world. So what are the important things that Mary is saying through her poem, her song of praise to God? First, Mary acknowledges that she is a sinner and that God is her only hope of salvation. The official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church is that Mary was, quote, free of every personal sin her whole life long, end quote. But there is just no way to square that with verse 47. Only sinners need a Savior. And here Mary confesses that God is her Savior. Mary confesses that God has blessed her. She is a recipient of His undeserved grace. Mary confesses that God is holy, which is to say that He is perfectly righteous and perfectly free from sin. God's holiness also means that He is rightly angered at sin and at the sinners who commit sin and rebel against Him. In verses 51 through 53, Mary acknowledges that God has accomplished several reversals. Uh, this is one of the main ways in which Mary's song is reminiscent of Hannah's song we read earlier from 1 Samuel uh, uh, chapter 2. The Lord has reversed the fortunes of the proud, the mighty, and the rich. In short, the Lord God has humbled those who have exalted themselves, and He has exalted those who are humble before Him. God's mercy, His salvation is, as verse 50 says, for those who fear Him. Mary declares there in verse 54 that what God is doing in and through her is rooted in God's promises to Abraham. This is confirmation of what has already been alluded to in chapter 1. The backdrop, you'll remember, of Zechariah and Elizabeth's pregnancy is that of Abraham and Sarah's pregnancy. Mary's pregnancy has connections with God's ancient promises to Abraham too. Where John will announce the coming fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham, Jesus will accomplish the fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. Luke's traveling companion, the Apostle Paul, made this plain in Galatians chapter 3, verse 16, where Paul wrote, Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. 
It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Look at Mary's words there again in verse 55. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Mary's song, it it contains several important truths. Mary is a sinner. God is the Savior of sinners. He has been gracious and merciful to bless her. His grace and mercy is for those who fear Him, and He is faithful to His promises. But what does this mean for us? It means that with Mary, we ought to confess that we are sinners. Humble ourselves and acknowledge that we cannot save ourselves. Rejoice in God's kind mercy to exalt those who humble themselves before Him and to fear, to place our faith in the one who is faithful to His promises to save sinners. Zachariah's song pulls out these same truths too. And here's what I want you to notice about Zachariah's poem as we read it. For, for a new father who has been longing For the arrival of a child, he sure does talk a lot about Mary's child. Let's read Luke chapter 1, verses 67 through 80. Luke 1, verses 67 through 80. And his father, Zechariah, was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy promised to our fathers, and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child will be called the prophet of the Most High. For you will go before the Lord to prepare His ways, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Just as Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, so Zacharias filled with the Holy Spirit. Take a look at verse 69 there. Who's he speaking about? He's not speaking about his son. In the house of David, Jesus is the one from the house of David. And do you see how many times Zacharias spoke of salvation and its related concepts? He speaks about redemption in verse 68, salvation in verses 69 and 71. He speaks about being shown mercy in verse 72 and being delivered in verse 74. This is all what God will do to the one from the house of David. It's not until we get to verse 76 that Zechariah mentions his own son. But then what is his focus on when he mentions his, his newborn son? His focus is on what his son will do for the child that Mary's carrying. John will prepare his way, verse 76, giving knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, verse 77. Now pause. Here Luke, and really Zechariah, and really the Holy Spirit speaking through Zechariah, has just introduced to us a crucial conception of salvation. Salvation is not fundamentally about being saved from human enemies. It is not fundamentally about Jewish people being oppressed by Roman authorities and that oppression being removed. Salvation is fundamentally about the forgiveness of sins. It is fundamentally about being delivered from the forces of evil, Satan's forces, those who hate us and want to see us sit in darkness without hope of God in the world. God's mercy is greater than all of those enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil. John is going to do this work of announcing that salvation has come in Jesus Christ because, verse 78, because of the tender mercy of our God.
Do you want to know why God is causing all of these things to happen? The answer is simple. Because of the tender mercy of our God. And recognize this. God has been rebelled against. We have shaken our fists at him and said, I will go it alone. We have said, your morals are not my morals. Your rules are not my rules. We have rejected his rule for our own. And just like our first parents, just like Adam and Eve, we too have endeavored to sit on his throne and rule our own lives. He has stared this rebellion in the face and he has said, I will not give you what your sins deserve. I will forgive you. No longer will I allow this sinful world to remain in darkness. Instead, I will send my son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he will break upon the darkness of the world like the sun pierces through the darkness that causes light to dawn. He will accomplish salvation for his people, the forgiveness of sins, and they will no longer be at war with me. Now they will know peace with me and walk in peace with me. Verse 79. Friends, we have heard from Mary in verse 50 that God's mercy is for those who fear him. And now we've heard from Zechariah that because of God's mercy, he will forgive sinners. So I have one question for you. Will you come to fear God and trust his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins? Do you not see that what you need has been given in Jesus Christ? Jesus being fully God and fully man, lived the life that we have not lived. He lived a life free of sin and of perfect obedience to God the Father. And yet, He gave up His life on the cross, bearing the punishment of the sins for, of all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised the Lord Jesus Christ from the grave, vindicating Him. And proving to us all that his life was an acceptable sacrifice on behalf of repentant sinners, on behalf of those who fear God. If you're here this morning and you're not a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, I want to urge you today to turn from your sins, to place your faith in Jesus Christ, the one through whom salvation comes, and come to have peace with God. You can find me at the door after the service. You can talk with a friend or family member or co-worker you came here with this morning. There's nothing more important you can think about than this good news. That it is because of God's tender mercy that he offers the forgiveness of sins through faith in Jesus Christ. If these two poems communicate anything, they communicate this. God's mercy is great for those who fear him. Which is what we want to think about as we conclude. Luke 1 teaches us that our God knew the need of the world. It teaches us that he even ordained and orchestrated the history of the world so that his son would come into the world to redeem the world. Luke's references to Genesis 1, to Abraham, and Sarah, and David, and the prophets all reveal to us that God has been preparing history for this moment. And the moment has come. And his great work of salvation the forgiveness of sins has been accomplished in Jesus Christ. And may we respond to the tender mercy of our God with hearts full of joy-filled faith. Let's pray together.